Uh, good evening, everyone, and thank you for that uh, warm applause. I'm Chetan Bhatt, Director of the Centre for the Study of Human Rights at LSE, and I'd like to welcome you to this event on justice, accountability, and human rights in India with our distinguished speaker, Mr. Dushant Dave. And this event is jointly organised with the South Asia Centre at LSE and the India Study Group. And I'd like to warmly welcome you and thank you for joining us this rainy evening. The theme of this evening is human rights in India, the world's largest democracy, but one where enduring inequalities and injustices continue. Uh, ones related to poverty, to gender, caste, to religious violence, violence against women, and even around everyday instances of people's ordinary lives and what they face regarding corruption, accountability, and so on. But of course, India has a strong secular and democratic tradition, and it has a very powerful set of movements for women's rights, for justice and accountability, against corruption, against caste discrimination, for human rights, and also for peace between people that are carved by others into antagonistic communities. And a central aspect of the battle for human rights concerns the role of the regional states and the central state. I'm therefore very delighted and honored to welcome Dushan Dave to LSE and to London. And Mr. Dave is a very well-known senior advocate of India and currently the president of the Supreme Court Bar Association. And over the last three decades, he's fought to bring accountability in public administration and public services and to get justice for Indian citizens in cases involving violations of fundamental rights and human rights. And he was a member of the National Legal Services Authority, the highest statutory body responsible for legal aid in India from 2003 to 8. And I know some people here are also dealing with the cuts in legal aid services that we see here. And he's also been a leading figure in the field of international commercial arbitration, having been a member of the London Court of International Arbitration, among other bodies. And he's very well known in India for his strong, ethical, and independent thinking. And he appears regularly on national television to comment and debate on issues of accountability and justice for citizens in human rights areas and human rights protection. And he's strongly involved in efforts related to bringing transparency to the judiciary. Mr. Dave has appeared in many high-profile legal cases, including serious cases of human rights violations, riot-related cases, something called fake encounters with people may not know about outside of India, but it's a South Asian phenomena of stage-managed killings, and violations of the rights of women, members of the scheduled class and scheduled tribes. And he successfully argued, as amicus curiae, that the right of the accused to remain silent is sacrosanct and cannot be interfered with, even in very serious crimes and terrorism. He has a very successful practice and appears pro bono in numerous cases. And he's here with his lovely wife, and they were childhood sweethearts. <laughs> they dated for eight years, and they married, uh, and have been married for 35 years, and have two children. So I'm delighted that he's here. Mr. Dave will speak for around 30 to 40 minutes, and after this there'll be time for your questions. And this event is being recorded, and we hope to have a podcast of the lecture and the question and answer session online in a day or so. And uh, if you'd like to comment, please do on Twitter using the suggested hashtag for the event, which is LSE India. But can I also please ask you, if you're doing that, to turn your phones and other electronic devices to silent. 
The event has to finish just before 8 o'clock, but there's a reception after the event and an opportunity for you to meet Mr. Dave. So may I ask you to extend your warm welcome to Mr. Dushant Dave. Namaskar. Good evening, everybody. Director Chetan Bhatt, ladies and gentlemen, it's indeed a great privilege to be here it, before one of the greatest institutions that world speaks about. I had never been to London School of Economics before, and I deem it an absolute privilege to be here today, this evening, amongst you. I thank you all of you for being here. I intend to tell you little unpleasant things about what's happening back home in India. And I would like you to introspect over what's really a rather, you know, unknown story about India. Everybody today understands India to be a country with 9% GDP over the last 10 years, marching side by side with China, and of course the Western democracies, unfortunately, are all falling prey to this you know, GDP movement world over, whether it's in China or in India, at the cost of any, you know, any suggestion or any inquiry into the human rights violations. So let me tell you something which is going to be a little different from what you have been reading about India in newspapers what you know about India. And believe you me, I love India as much as every Indian does. When I stand here before you, I stand here realizing that it's extremely difficult to tell the truth about what's really the situation back home in India. I sometimes feel quite torn from, apart from within because there is always a moral dilemma that when you go abroad, do you really speak truth about your country or do you hide it? And I always ask my conscience as to whether I should really be telling honestly what really is ailing us. Because I do believe that it's only the discussions and open discussions that can really be an antiseptic to the problems that a country can face. As Professor Butt said, the best thing about India is that it's the world's largest democracy. And the democratic institutions from 1950, except for a brief period in 1975 to 1977, have remained virtually intact. But what really has happened is that every other institution which has to make the democracy functional has failed. This includes the executive, the legislature, and of course, my judiciary, which is a matter of great regret. <clears throat> the significance of this discussion is underscored by the fact that India is the second most populous country in the world. 1.2 billion people. Out of that, about 684 million women. So about 45, 46% women, 14% minorities, the Muslims. 15% scheduled castes, 8% scheduled tribes. It is these sections of the society which are extremely vulnerable today. Let me tell you one thing 
the the erosion of the human values or what we call the human rights began in 1975 when mrs gandhi imposed emergency in india what really is shocking and what is painful is that she suspended human rights altogether by bringing emergency and what is more painful is that my supreme court upheld those suspension of rights in a leading case called adm versus jabalpur except justice khanna who really stood apart for the citizens all the judges and this includes some of the most distinguished names in our country like justice chinaparedi justice krishnayar justice bhagwati who are respected world over they all stood against the citizens and said yes mrs gandhi had a right to impose emergency and suspend the fundamental rights of citizens so this journey in erosion in human rights began in 1975 it's continued unabated and the attacks on women scheduled tribes scheduled castes and the minorities have gone on completely unchecked over last four and a half decades but what is troublesome today is that india today is under a siege siege from the right wingers siege from people who have no respect whatsoever for the human rights of these large sections of society beat women be it scheduled caste be it scheduled tribe be it the minorities and this is something which we have to really ponder we have to introspect because don't forget that world has today become one india always believed in a philosophy which is called vasudev kutumbakam world is one now it is therefore very very difficult today for any country to remain in isolation from rest of the world and uh, and 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 carry itself in complete disregard of the international conventions like the universal declaration of law and various universal declarations which really protect the civil political social and economic rights of every human being in the world so this is something which we really <coughs> are today worried about lately and this is what is let me tell you what has happened in last few months maybe almost a year and a half ago it began with the election process which was declared uh, in 2014 in the run up to the elections uh, which ultimately brought the bharatiya janata party into power and prime minister modi who has a world image today and he is really you know today uh, trying to uh, give a face of india which is very different from what the reality is it began with that election campaign which was carried on in complete negation of any respect for you know the minority communities every attempt was made during the election speeches to really attack the minorities in veiled fashion and this was really done for the purpose of really winning over the votes of the hindu majority regrettably india is fast becoming a majoritarian state and it is not good for india because india has a history of 5000 years and for 5000 years india has been an inclusive nation our culture has always been extremely inclusive it is a nation which produced some of the finest religions of the world besides hinduism jainism buddhism islam came christianity came 
none of these religions really ever touched Hinduism, which survived with absolute, you know, uh, its principles, its ethos, and its philosophy all these 5,000 years. So it's really surprising that post-independence, this, you know, this inclusiveness should start disappearing so fast in a society which has retained it for almost 5,000 years. So this is something which you will have to ponder. What began recently was that a young man called Mohsin Sheikh, 28 years of age, was killed by right-wing extremists on 2nd of June 2014. Why? Because somebody morphed a picture of a great Maratha uh, warrior king, Shivaji Maharaj, and Bal Thakre, the right-wing uh, leader of a party, uh, late Mr. Bal Thakre, of Shiv Sena in Mumbai. It is an extreme right-wing organization, but it is a partner of the BJP today in the government. This picture was morphed and put on the social media. It was completely manufactured. Mr. Mohsin Sheikh had nothing to do with that picture. He was only wearing a skull cap, and he was killed immediately after this morphed uh, you know, image appeared on social media. What happened thereafter is more shocking. Within minutes, a text message was circulated by right-wingers to its, com you know, its, uh, its, uh, its comrades and its scudders, saying, one wicket down. Now, this is how began the journey of violations of human rights in June of 2014, just after the elections were over, and which had brought Prime Minister Modi into. No action is taken. I mean, real culprits are never you know, picked up in these kind of things. Later, in Goa, one young man called Devu, Devu Shonkar, a shipping engineer, he was detained for Facebook comment saying that if Mr. Modi came to power, the Christians in Goa would lose their identity. The, the freedom of speech which is guaranteed in our constitution is being constantly attacked by these right-wingers. Whatever may be their reason, whatever may be, but this is something which is really not good for a nation like India. Fortunately, Section 66A of the Information Technology Act, which was enacted you know, by the previous government, and there's very little to choose between the political parties. Congress has its own you know, uh, uh, misdeeds, which I'll come to later. But Section 66A of the Information Technology Act, which, were re which was really used to arrest you know, young men and women, uh, especially on their comments on social media, was declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court uh, some, some earlier this year, and that's been a great relief so far as people are concerned. Similarly, a very, very well-researched book by an American academician, Wendy Doniger. She wrote a brilliant book on Hinduism. One may or one may not agree with her views, but it was an extremely well-researched book. Penguin was to publish it. The right-wing organization filed a legal action and actually forced Penguin to withdraw that book from the market. Now, I mean, it's nothing, this has been happening in India for a long time. It began, as you would know, uh, with the banning of satanic verses by Salman Rushdie in India long back during the Congress regime. And it also happened that during the Congress regime, the Supreme Court decided to give some rights to Muslim women who really are, you know, governed by the Sharia. But the Supreme Court said when it comes to divorce, no Sharia. The, the, uh, the civil law should apply, the common law should apply. 
and uh, uh, the government of uh, Congress government then brought about a legislation to overcome that judgment of the Supreme Court. So, you know, this, this kind of unfortunately has been going on for a long time. It's only increasing in intensity. Recently, as you may have perhaps read, more disturbing trend is emerging. A Muslim farmer, Muhammad Aklak, was killed on 28th of September. Why? Because he was eating beef in his house. Now, is this the kind of a democracy that we want? I'm a vegetarian, I'm a proud Hindu, I'm a Brahmin, and I don't eat non-veg. But I have no problem if somebody sits on my table and eats beef. That's how, I mean, you have to respect the other human beings. But this Mr. Aklak was killed by right-wingers just because he was eating beef in his house. This has been followed by extremely disturbing attacks on truck drivers carrying cows to the slaughterhouses. In three incidents, they have been killed mercilessly on road. They are waylaid and they are killed. This trend is continuing. The whole, the whole idea is to impose upon the minorities Hinduism or the principles of Hinduism. And this is clear because the chief minister of a BJP-run government in Haryana, which is just outside Delhi, where, you know, Gurgaon is one of the fastest growing technology and business hub. The chief minister of that state, Mr. Khattar, publicly said, and I quote him, <clears throat> Muslims can continue to live in this country, but they will have to give up eating beef. Now, imagine a chief minister of a state with a population of almost 10 million people who is sworn to Constitution of India, which requires him to protect everybody and everybody's culture, makes a public statement to this effect. The whole idea is that you, you scare minority communities as much as you can, push them to the wall. It, it cannot work, but these are the kind of trends which are happening. Unfortunately, the world is not noticing it. Why? because the Western world is interested in taking a pie out of India's businesses. I mean, it's complete hypocrisy. United Kingdom will talk about human rights, but when it comes to violations of human rights in countries like China and India, United Kingdom and Prime Minister Cameron will ignore them completely. You have the present visit of the Chinese president, and he's been given a red carpet, completely overlooking that millions of people have suffered in China at the hands of the Communist Party. You, you must engage with them. Nobody says no. But engage with them to persuade, pressurize them to at least start respecting human rights. Doesn't happen that way. This trend now goes beyond imagination. Three of the most respected intellectuals, rationalists in India, Mr. Pansare, Mr. Kalburgi, and Mr. Dabolkar, have been murdered in last one year. Why? Because they are rationalists and they do not subscribe to the old philosophy of the Hinduism. Now, how can a nation countenance? These are all killings taking place by right-wingers. There is a very hardline right-winger organization which owes allegiance to uh, groups like RSS, Rashtriya Swamsevak Sangh, and the BJP. These killings have sent really, you know, it, I mean, 
absolute chill down the spine of almost every intellectual in the country today. The whole purpose is that you scare people into silence. <clears throat> Outraged by these murders and curbs on the free speech, over 50 writers and poets have returned the highest honors conferred upon them by Sahitya Academy, the highest literary body in India, especially over its silence. But look at the response of the government. My good friend, the finance minister, Mr. Arun Jetli, who I always believe to be a moderate, he made a statement, and which is really, I mean, shocking. He said that these protests were a manufactured revolt. Now, can you imagine 50 top writers and poets across the country from every language, and we have about 25 recognized languages, are returning their awards in protest over killings of these rationalist intellectuals, attacks on the minorities. And the response of the government is that these are manufactured revolt. <clears throat> Ramchandra Guha, a very respected writer, said, the RSS is coming out in the open and saying, we control this place. It's very disturbing. And he, Modi, is much weaker than people thought he would be. This has been reported in the Financial Times over the weekend, 17th and 18th. <clears throat> Shiv Sena, a right-wing force in Mumbai, publicly and proudly doused black ink on Mr. Sudendra Kulkarni, also a BJP you know, leader and former aide of Mr. L.K. Advani, former, uh, former Deputy Prime Minister. On October 12, during a book launch by former Pakistani minister Kasuri. Now they, they are publicly honored. Shiv Sena leader Mr. Ruddav Thakare publicly honored these five young men from different walks of life who doused ink on Mr. Kulkarni. Where have we come to? And Shiv Sena is the partner. It has ministers in Mumbai, I mean in the Maharashtra government. Mumbai is the capital of that Maharashtra. So you can imagine the whole purpose is to really create an atmosphere of fear. An atmosphere that either you are with us or you are not there. Simply that. Manjula Narayan, writing in Hindustan Times, a very respected and widely circulated daily, summarized all these by saying, and I quote, It is true that the killing of Dabolkar, Panser, and Kalburgi are all part of a push towards excluding minorities of all kinds. Those who are not part of great stream of Hinduism and those whose ideals don't conform. She further says, the problem then is that the country is now in the grip of, frankly, anti-intellectual. Lord Meghnath Desai, writing in the Indian Express on October 18, makes a more severe indictment. And I quote, There are two issues of intolerance in Sahitya Academy exodus. One is the killing of Akhlaq by a local Hindu mob in Dadri, the beef-eating uh, young Muslim man. As murders of Muslims go, this was particularly the most horrible. It is intolerance of a vicious kind, which refuses, <clears throat> which refuses to engage in any dialogue 
except about religious identity. Akhlaq was killed not for eating beef, but for being a Muslim. This is because ideology of Hindutva is not about Hindus, but about excluding Muslims. It is the murder of rationalists, few though they have been, which are most serious. As Muslims know well, making law and order a state subject is to mortgage your lives to the vagaracy of the vote banks. Your lives, uh, uh, sorry, police will be, uh, your lives, uh, uh, police will be suitably late or not turn up at all. No large vote bank, no protection, he says. He concludes, though to my mind only a wishful thinking, only civil society can fight and guarantee freedoms, not political parties. I can regrettably tell you that one of the singular most failure of India is the civil society. Nobody wants to speak. Everybody wants to ride this so-called development theme of Prime Minister Modi, completely overlooking the rights of people. <clears throat> this balance sheet doesn't end here. Only last week, two young girls, aged two and five, were raped in the heart of Delhi. As part of over 25,000 reported rapes, which are committed across India every year. You know why? Because even today, 65 years after independence, women are not respected in India. Nobody cares. You are talking about almost 47-48% of population. And these rapes take place with impunity. With Nirbhaya, you know, rape, which you, perhaps all of you must have heard of in Delhi about one and a half, two years ago, the conscience of the nation was shaken. Government brought new law to fight, you know, these rape cases. And I must tell you with great regret that that conscience has since died. Nobody now gives a second thought to these kind of rapes. Imagine two-year-old and five-year-old girls being raped right in the heart of the city. And what is at stake? The power struggle between Mr. Modi's government of center and the state government, uh, which is the Ahmadmi Party, which defeated BJP uh, post-2014 uh, general election. The central government controls the police in Delhi and does not want the Ahmadmi Party to control the police so that it can take credit of fighting law and order. Now look at it. Who are the victims? Innocent citizens. But nobody cares. They all go on, you know, uh, playing blame game. Last Monday, we are on Wednesday, two Dalit children, scheduled caste children, Vaibhav and Divya, aged one, two and one, aged two and one, were burnt alive in their homes. In Sonpad, on the outskirts of Delhi, in the state of Haryana, whose chief minister made that silly statement. And why? because the village is dominated by the high caste thakurs and these, uh, these Dalits or downtrodden or you know, scheduled caste really cannot raise voice against the thakurs. So just imagine that right outside and there are, there are maybe at least a at least couple of thousands of such incidents which take place in India across the scheduled caste and scheduled tribe on a regular routine basis.
just few weeks ago, just few weeks ago in Jodhpur, in Rajasthan, a fairly big city, you know, in the children, schools, we have the midday meal schemes. One Harijan child, a downtrodden child, by mistake, touched the plate of a child who came from a higher caste. The teacher who belonged to the same higher caste beat up that child so severely that he almost died. Now, this is India. Gandhiji fought all his life to remove untouchability. But 65 years down the road after independence, we have this kind of a situation. And it's, these are not isolated incidents. I can assure you, you walk out of Delhi, Mumbai, or any major city, five kilometers, and you'll find in every village, the scheduled caste, scheduled tribe, or the downtrodden are being systematically marginalized. They cannot draw wa water from the well, which belongs to the high caste. They cannot enter the temple of, uh, of the high caste uh, Hindus, nor can perhaps they walk while the high caste Hindus are walking in the villages. Their women are routinely raped, and the police will never come to their help. It's a very, very serious situation across the country. These killings are part of worse form of racism, which is practiced against backward classes across the country. And of course, to add to all this, there have been series of attacks on churches across the country. Right in the heart of Delhi, at least half a dozen churches have been uh, you know, attacked. Arson and looting have taken place. A few uh, hundred meters from my own house, there is a beautiful old church and it is constantly guarded now by armed guards of the police. I mean, there is, there is, nobody is free now. Nobody is free in this country. <clears throat> so why is this situation? In its manifesto for last year's general election, BJP tom-tommed a slogan, Sabka Saath, Sabka Vikas. Together with all, development for all. So what do we find one and a half year later? Is there sabka saath, sabka vikas? <clears throat> it also said in its, uh, in its manifesto that we will ensure a peaceful and secure environment where there is no place for either the perpetrators or exploiters of fear. This is what they got the votes on. These were the statements made in their election manifesto. It also said, and this is troublesome, in a democracy, everyone is not only free, but also encouraged to voice his or her concerns. It is also necessary that these voices be heard and concerns redressed. But now comes a serious world face, publicly said in their manifesto. And I don't know what it means. Perhaps it could only have been justified in Hitler's Germany. However, this should happen within the framework of our constitution. And with the spirit of India first, we have to keep nation at the forefront of our thoughts and actions. I don't know what it means. What about individual liberties? What about individual personalities? Of course, nobody says that sovereignty of India should not be compromised. Nobody says that you must uh, allow the nation to be weakened by terrorist organizations. But is this the kind of a statement that, it, to my mind, this is a veiled warning to those who do not fall in line? 
it's an extremely serious matter and I can tell you nobody till today has even noticed it it went completely unnoticed question here is which is the constitutional limitation that BJP is talking about one which law recognizes or one which political party the in power or its allies recognize on the streets <clears throat> Dr. Ambedkar one of India's greatest leaders during the framing of the Constitution and many of us consider him to be father of modern Constitution of India he was a Dalit he came from uh, scheduled caste in those days during the debates on 4th of November 1948 in Constituent Assembly had forewarned and look at the prophetic words of this man in this country both the minorities and the majorities have followed a wrong path it is wrong for the majority to deny the existence of the minorities it is equally wrong for the minorities to perpetuate themselves a solution must be found which will serve a double purpose it must recognize the existence of the minorities to start with it must also be such that it will enable majorities and minorities to merge someday into one the solution proposed by constituent assembly is to be welcomed because it is a solution which serves twofold purpose to diehards who have developed a kind of fanaticism against minority protection I would like to say two things look at the man's warning 1948 now he says one is that minorities are an explosive force which if it erupts can blow up the whole fabric of the state the history of Europe bears ample and appalling testimony to this fact the other is that the minorities in India have agreed to place their existence in the hands of the majority in the history of negotiations for preventing uh, the partition of Ireland Redmond said to Carson ask for any safeguard you like for the protestant minority but let us have a united Ireland <clears throat> Carson's reply was damn your safeguards we don't want to be ruled by you no majority in India has taken this stand no minority in India has taken this stand they have loyally accepted the rule of the majority which is basically a communal majority and not a political majority it is for the majority to realize its duty not to discriminate against minorities whether the minorities will continue or will vanish must depend upon this habit of the majority the moment majority loses the habit of discriminating against minority he says the minorities can have no ground to exist they will vanish because they'll become one now look at the prophetic words of this man with with almost 170 to 180 million Muslims in the country just imagine from Europe more than 10,000 young men and women have gone towards ISIS God forbid even 5,000 of them should decide to join ISIS in India and you know become suicide bombers we will never be safe in our country we can't afford to push a sizable minority of Muslims they have become part of us they are part of us and we should never make them feel that they are not wanted in this country <clears throat> the problem of India is that everybody recognizes the rights nobody is bothered about his duties and there's a beautiful beautiful letter that Mahatma Gandhi wrote in 1948 
to Dr. Al, uh, Julian Huxley, then Director General of the UNESCO, who was part of framing of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. He, Gandhi's opinion was sought, and Gandhi replied back, and I quote, I learned from my illiterate but wise mother that all rights to be deserved and preserved came from duty well done. Thus, the very right to live accrues to us only when we do the duty of citizenship of the world. From this one fundamental statement, perhaps it is easy enough to define the duties of men and women and correlate every right to some corresponding duty to be first performed. Every other right can be shown to be a usurpation hardly worth fighting for. Unquote. Look at this. I mean, what a simple way. And Gandhi was amazingly simple. There's a very beautiful story when he was on fast in Sabarmati Ashram once uh, for a number of days and Gandhi went on fast, you know, time and again against the British Empire. That was his best weapon. All the leaders, his health was failing. He, doctors said that if he doesn't uh, stop the fast, he might even die. So all top leaders of, of the freedom struggle landed up in Ahmedabad at Sabarmati Ashram to request Gandhi to break the fast. And while they were all talking to him with utmost seriousness about the situation across the country, Gandhi suddenly gets up because he remembers that a very beautiful goat that he kept, you know, he, he had forgotten to give, you know, feed it. He goes, gets up in the midst of this, goes there, and, and everybody is shocked about it. So this is Gandhi's simplicity, which really, the Vedas proclaim liberty of body, dwelling house, and life as fundamental human values. And Vedas are almost 5,000 years old. <clears throat> Arth Shastra, the epic text of governance by Kautilya says, in the happiness of the subjects lies the happiness of the king, and what is beneficial to the subject is his own benefit. He strongly disproved the theory of royal absolutism and subordinated the king to the law. I really wish our modern kings would understand Arth Shastra. They don't. The Buddhist doctrine of non-violence indeed and thought is a humanitarian doctrine dating back to 3rd century BC. But to us Hindus, Gita is our most you know, respected text. Gita tells us, and I quote, He who has no ill will, do, will to any being who is friendly and compassionate, who is free from egoism and self-sense, and who is even-minded in pain and pleasure and patience, is dear to God. It further says that divinity in humans is represented by virtues of non-violence, truth, freedom from anger, renunciation, aversion to fault, finding compassion to living beings, freedom from covetousness, gentleness, modesty, and steadiness, the qualities that a good human being ought to have. But the right-wing Hindus don't want to read Gita. They have their own version of Gita. This is the problem. <clears throat> Interestingly, Universal Declaration of Law and India's Constitution were being drafted side by side. And the, the drafting committee, uh, the Constituent Assembly of India, comprised of 300 outstanding men and women. And from 47 to 50, they deliberated and debated our Constitution and drew inspiration from every constitution of the world every constitution. And the fundamental rights that they have given us are virtually embodiment of universal declaration of human rights and other declarations of political social rights. So our constitution, which is a written text, 
has all these rights which are guaranteed to the citizens. And yet what do we find? That they are merely on paper. Nobody respects them. Even on a street, a policeman can, you know, I, I have stopped many a times on the road when I find a traffic policeman actually beating up a taxi driver or a tuk-tuk driver. Why? Because he thinks that he can take law into his own hands. I have, I have once stopped, my wife was with me, I have once stopped policemen who actually picked up prostitutes from the road, unfortunate women, and wanted to abuse them, you know, by taking them on the side in a, you know, in a, in a remote area. I followed them at late in the night. I had a very, very serious dialogue with them. I threatened them. And then, you know, they left those girls. So these kind of abuses take place on a daily basis. The human dignity, you know, it's just not the <coughs> life which is important. It's not liberty alone. But it's the dignity of human being which is so paramount in human rights. That dignity has to be preserved. And we are singularly failing in preserving that dignity on a day-to-day -day basis. <coughs> India's Supreme Court has time and again declared that universal declaration of human rights may not be a legally binding instrument, but it shows how India understood the nature of human rights at the time of constitution was adopted. India has since ratified International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights, minus the optional protocol, and the International Covenant of Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. But India has refused to sign the Universal Declaration Against Torture, which is really sad because, you know, it has given the police all kinds of powers. <coughs> Clearly, access to justice has moved from a moral perspective to a legal right under the constitutional law of India, backed by international law. Rule of law is undoubtedly the cornerstone of India's democracy. So is the principle of equal access to justice with the establishment of institutions and procedural rules granting access to all along with substantive laws and empowering citizens to obtain justice. But this is in theory. It is indeed a sound platform for an ideal situation to protect human rights. But the truth or the reality is completely divorced. Perceptions of injustice and lack of access to redress of clear or alleged wrongs through established processes is a recurring decimal in India. Former Secretary General of United Nations Kofi Annan once said, and I quote, the United Nations has learned that the rule of law is not a luxury and that justice is not a side issue. We have seen that without a credible machinery to enforce the law and resolve disputes, people resorted to violence and illegal means. We have learned that the rule of law delayed is lasting peace denied and that justice is a handmaiden of true peace." Unquote. <clears throat> the journey, recent journey of India about human rights has been very severely criticized and indicted by four reports and I'm going, not going to read them in detail. Human Rights Watch in its report of 2014, has seriously indicted India. And it says, amongst other things, the year also, this is for 2013, the year also saw increased restrictions on internet freedom, 
continued marginalization of Dalits, tribal groups, religious minorities, sexual and gender minorities, people with disabilities, and persistent impunity for abuses linked to insurgencies, particularly in Maoist areas, Jammu and Kashmir, Manipur, and Assam. <clears throat> Amnesty, in its report of 2014 and 15, on the state of world's human rights, has a very, very strong indictment of India. Amongst the other things, Amnesty says, and I quote, the overburdened and underfunded criminal justice system contributed to justice being denied to those who suffered abuses and to violations of fair trial rights of accused. Violence by armed groups in Jammu and Kashmir, northeastern states and areas where Maoist forces operated continued to put the civilians at risk. <clears throat> U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom in 2015 report has said, despite country's status as a pluralistic secular democracy, India has long struggled to protect minority religious communities or provide justice when crimes occur, which perpetuates a climate of impunity. Incidents of religiously motivated and communal violence reportedly have increased for three consecutive years. <clears throat> the Country Report on Human Rights Practices for 2014, published by the United States Department of State, Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights and Labels, has commented, and I'll quote a little bit of it, a lack of accountability for misconduct at all levels of government persisted. Investigations and prosecutions of individual cases took place, but lacks enforcement, shortage of trained police officers, and an overburdened, under-resourced court system contributed to infrequent convictions. <clears throat> These findings may or may not be true. Officially, India rejects most of them, or either ignores them. But they do stare in faces of those who love and practice human values. Facts are not different on the ground in the official reports available in India. National Human Rights Commission published its report in 2010 and 11 and said that the number of cases which were registered by it ran into more than 90,000, 82,000, and 84,000 for three years between 2008 to 2011. And mind you, National Human Rights Commission is a toothless body because it has only power of recommendation. It has no other power. And the compensation that it awards is virtually peanut in respect. In fact, in one in particular 2010-11, it rejected 90% of the complaints. And the difficulty is that generally the choice of chairman of this commission is so you know faulty that you just don't get the best or powerful body which you need. And that, that's because we have now made a, a law that only a former Chief Justice of India can become the chairman of that commission. And I must say that not many former Chief Justice of India are really worthy of their positions. It's a, it's a big challenge to us. It's an institutional challenge. <clears throat> Extrajudicial killings are a blot on democracy in India. But they continue unabated and with impunity. I must tell you that in Gujarat, there was a very celebrated case of Surabuddin murder, where a gangster called Surabuddin, his wife, Kausarbi, and his friend Prajapati 
all were picked up during Mr. Modi's chief ministership of Gujarat. He was the home minister. His police picked them up from other state, brought them to Ahmedabad, and killed them. Nobody knew the reasons. I fought the case in the Supreme Court for the families of these people, and we, uh, you know, we were, we were, uh, we persuaded Supreme Court to refer the investigations to the Central Bureau of Investigation because there was no faith left in the Gujarat police which had killed them. And the case was transferred to Maharashtra from Gujarat, you know, to bring objectivity and justice to the family. This year, I regrettably tell you that despite Supreme Court's intervention and the CBI's investigation and so-called independent court in the state of Maharashtra, virtually every accused is being discharged pending criminal trial without even going through the trial. These killings are really a blot on us. Dr. Kanayal Al-Munshi, one of the greatest freedom fighters and member of the Constituent Assembly, a great lawyer, a great writer, educationist, he said on 6th December 1948, and I quote, we want to set up a democracy. The House said it over and over again. And the essence of democracy is that a balance must be struck between individual liberty on the one hand and social control on the other. I can tell you, it's really a matter of sadness to inform that social control has absolutely taken over individual liberty in today's India. <clears throat> so why is the constitution being subverted and innocent lives taken away in the name of security of the nation? There are several reasons. First is that the police is never held accountable in India. In almost all these cases which go right up to the Supreme Court and Supreme Court you know, professes to be an active Supreme Court, unlike your courts, where anybody can move Supreme Court by even writing a letter in what is known as the public interest litigation jurisprudence. It's really a fantastic innovation, where citizens who have no access to, you know, lawyers can write letters to the judges, and if judges find the letters to be creditworthy, then judges will intervene. But despite development of that jurisprudence, none of these cases have really brought justice to people which is really surprising because, you know, <clears throat> and Supreme Court likes to interfere in everything in public interest litigation, including on stray cattle on the streets. But they don't bother about, you know, acting against these kind of killings, which are really large scale across the nation. <clears throat> Second factor is the enforcement of the most regressive law that any country can have, called the Armed Forces Special Powers Act of 1958. Now, this is a gift of the British Raj, but we continued with that law. Today, Jammu and Kashmir <coughs> and nine states in the northeast of India, including Manipur, are following with that law. What is the effect of that law? That the soldiers, these are all disturbed areas where army is actually controlling or paramilitary forces. The soldiers have a right to shoot against an assembly if they see weapons or something looking alike weapons. And these killings cannot be brought before an ordinary court of law. These killings are, you know, and, and in last about 20 years, 25 years, almost 30 to 40,000 people have lost their lives in these killings without, <coughs> without a single army man really being indicted and be having been sent to jail. 
Recently, because of intervention of Supreme Court, some cases have been reopened. But that's it. This law is an extremely regressive law, and it's a blot on democracy. Equally, the unwillingness of the National Human Rights Commission you know, to intervene, and of course, the silence of the civil society, which is a big problem. In 2014, the crimes against scheduled caste, scheduled tribe, children, and women were to the tune of, and just see the figures, 47,064, 89,423, and 337,922 against women in one year alone. What do we have? A lawless society. And you know why? It's very interesting. We have almost 200,000 policemen who are guarding these so-called VIPs of the country. Our Prime Minister is today guarded exclusively by approximately 2,000 men, 24 hours. When he travels on the roads, the roads are closed. When he flies out, the airports are closed. This is in the name of democracy. 200,000 people guarding bureaucrats, politicians, judges. And, you know, look at the situation. Post-1984 Sikh riots, every, you know, every murderer from the Congress party got the protection of national security guards. Post-demolition of Ayodhya, you know, uh, Ayodhya Mosque, Babri Masjid, every accused, including then, uh, uh, who later became the Deputy Prime Minister, Mr. L.K. Advani, got the protection of national uh, uh, security guards. Now, national security guards are, you know, created under a parliamentary act to fight terrorism. But what have they ended up doing? Every corrupt politician is protected by them, and every person who is involved in these high, uh, you know, uh, serious cases are being protected by them. So today, citizens really have to fend for themselves. Almost all of us, those who of us who can afford, have our own private guards to protect us, because the streets are unsafe. When my children were growing up, particularly our daughter, we had to actually send guards with her at night because it was so unsafe. So imagine the situation of a common man. <clears throat> the, the worst incident of attacks, and this is really troublesome, it's not just the violations of human rights by security forces, which is a big problem in India. The worst violations are taking place at the instance of the extremist organizations. The terrorist organizations, they may be, uh, they may be uh, Islamic terrorists, they may be Sikh separatists, and there are more than 50 to 60 separatist organizations which carry out attacks on innocent citizens all the time. And this is a serious challenge of India. Along with them, there is a group called Maoists, the left-wing guerrillas, who are today controlling something like 120 districts of India across seven to eight states. These are extremely violent left-wing organizations, and they kill, especially the policemen, security forces, and government employees with impunity. And, I mean, by conservative estimate, in last, since 1990, when the insurgency began in India, or, or maybe uh, from 1983, when the Sikh insurgency began, we have lost something like 100,000 innocent people, plus about 25,000 security men to these groups. 
Kashmiri Pandits, for example, I mean, you know, the Brahmins and the Hindus in Kashmir Valley, there was a systematic attack against them. And it was one of the worst kind of ethnic cleansing which took place in the state of Kashmir at the hands of militant organization. All these people were forced to live because they were either being slaughtered or their houses were being set on fire. But the difficulty is that the state was unable to protect their rights. Even today, these you know, Kashmiri Pandits are not being you know, rehabilitated back into Kashmir. I don't see why, because we have something like, something like 50,000 soldiers who are in Kashmir Valley, in one form or the other. And yet we are not able to rehabilitate these people who have been thrown out of their homes. It's really a sad commentary. So this is another unique problem that India is facing today from extreme organizations. And it is very difficult because, as you know, that cross-border terrorism is a very, very serious challenge to India. Pakistan, everybody knows, has been supporting all these terrorist groups for a long, long time. They are funded by them, they are armed by them, they are trained by them. You know the Bombay attacks, the terrorist, the one uh, uh, terrorist who was picked up, Kasab, he, he confessed to everything. The whole, you know, conspiracy was conceived in Pakistan. Everybody knows that the ISI, the intelligence, uh, army intelligence wing of Pakistan, is part of this organization. Of course, it is recalling back on Pakistan. So, <coughs> this is one problem <coughs> that... But I must tell you one thing. There are two particular carnages which are troublesome to conscience of those who really love India. One is the 1984 carnage of the Sikhs across India, which really resulted in killings of approximately 7,000 innocent men, women, and children. Why? because a Sikh guard killed Mrs. Gandhi, then Prime Minister. The Congress government actively participated in this, you know, genocide. Actively. And uh, the police never acted, and they did not bring the army onto the streets. There has, this was one of the worst violence, organized violence, which took place in the history of India. Now, it happened on 31st of October 1984 till 5th of November this, you know, uh, this killing, this arson, this looting continued for five days unabated. I, I as a lawyer, I have been appearing for Sikh organizations trying to help them. Believe you me, what is really troublesome is that despite over three decades, there has been no justice given to this community. And their contribution the Sikh community's contribution to the development of India is mind-boggling. But, no, we are just, our legal system has completely failed. There were about 700 cases which were brought against, you know, criminal cases which were brought. Almost, I think, except 30 people, nobody else has been convicted. Two commissions were appointed headed by former chief, uh, judges of the Supreme Court, first Justice Mishra Commission. Justice Mishra actually acknowledges that had the army been called on 1st November, things would have been completely different. And he said army was available. The second commission, uh, Justice Nanavati Commission, actually concludes that this killing was an organized act on the part of several ministers. 
in one pa pa part of the report and indicts then minister uh, mr uh, mr jagdish titler and then member of parliament sajan kumar but ultimately nanavati concludes that i have no credible evidence to say that you know the government did it now on the one hand you are saying that the ministers were responsible members of parliament were responsible in inciting you know uh, mobs to attack sikhs in the other you say i have none now look at this this is the failure of the judicial system these are supreme court judges with completely dead conscience and this is what is really troublesome that you know for three decades you if you can't bring justice to them what can you do i was arguing last case uh, against sajan kumar he has been exonerated in every case and in his constituency mind you 1200 people were killed in his parliamentary constituency 1200 people so when the last case came which involved a you know killing of a sikh granthi in a gurudwara you know their uh, temple <clears throat> the uh, the trial court and the high court both uh, framed the charge of murder against him he came to the supreme court and the present attorney general was defending him and the supreme court was virtually going uh, was telling me that mr dave how can we sustain the charge of murder and i told them in open court i actually threw my brief out of anger and i told judges that look what happened in those five days perhaps the six can forget but what has happened for last three decades no community can ever forget and it was my anger that you know brought the judges back into the matter and ultimately judges dismissed that but it is painful to you know even uh, even fight for it in no civilized society this kind of a nonsense will take place mind you post 911 post 911 <clears throat> uh, many people uh, were uh, you know uh, more than 3000 people died but president bush went to a mosque in washington and assured the muslim community that no harm will come to you two indians died a sikh and a patel a gujarati in florida and arizona in both cases in 3 months they brought conviction and this gujarati patel who died was sitting with a gujarati muslim in a store where he was killed in the appeal of the accused in a federal court the muslim gentleman gave a affidavit saying that pardon this man don't give him de uh, death sentence the federal judge dis dismissed it in one sentence and this is what majority of democracies he said this country will not tolerate hate crimes and look at where we are <clears throat> the gujarat riots of 2002 were equally bad again the same justice nanavati was appointed and he says there is no evidence that there was this was organized and mind you what was the reaction that the government failed to protect 58 innocent hindus who were traveling in a train which was set on fire allegedly by someone this government says by the muslims in retaliation over 1000 men women and children were slaughtered mr modi was then chief minister now how can any civilized society allow this nonsense to take place if you have police you have to use powers you have to use brutal force to stop this kind of rampaging mobs what did he do he actually allowed parading of dead bodies of those hindus who had died in train carnage to be paraded in the cities of gujarat to inflame the passions of the majority hindus and those crowds straight from the cremation grounds went to the muslim areas and started killing it's all documented but none of i mean nobody is brought to justice 
Virtually in every criminal case, the lawyers were appointed by them who really public prosecutors belong to the party, political party. Judges have completely failed. So this is really, you know, the kind of a situation which we have. To my mind, just give me two minutes. To my mind, <clears throat> India has had a long history of violence against minorities and it really is not going to end here. Justice is a myth because justice delayed is justice denied. Our court system are completely unable to do anything because we have more than 40 million pending cases in our courts. 40 million. So it is impossible in, you know, and especially criminal justice system is actually hijacked by the rich and the powerful. They get away. They get away. But a poor man never gets away. So you have wrong convictions. You have people being, you know, kept in prison for 10, 20 years and they are acquitted in appeal after 10, 20 years. So all those 10, 20 years they have spent without any fault of theirs. And the state awards a meager compensation of maybe 5, 20, 50 or 100 pounds. Now this kind of a situation can only be stopped if you have a... <clears throat> so the situation is which, and I now quote... Albert Einstein, to end my, uh, my <clears throat> talk, which, which is really, I would say, extremely troublesome words. He spoke in Chicago way back in 1940s. He said, and I quote, the existence and validity of human rights are not written in the stars. The ideals concerning the conduct of men towards each other and the desirable structure of the community have been conceived and taught by enlightened individuals in the course of history. Those ideals and convictions which resulted from historical experience, from the craving for beauty and harmony, have been readily accepted in theory by men, and at all times have been trampled upon by the same people under the pressure of their animal instincts. <clears throat> A large part of history is therefore replete with struggle for those human rights, an eternal struggle in which a final victory can never be won. He ends by saying, but to tire in that struggle would mean ruin of society. Ladies and gentlemen, I pray and hope that India does not get tired in its fight against violations of human rights. Thank you very, very much. Thank you very much, uh, very much indeed for an extremely powerful and a very, very passionate talk that dealt with a very wide range of, of, of complicated issues. <laughs> and I know for some of the students here, you now begin to see the, some of the complexities of human rights that we'll be dealing with in our courses. Now, we have time for questions, and I know people will have uh, questions around various different issues. So what I'm going to do is to take questions in groups of three, and you'll also see our wonderful stewards in their red clothing. Uh, coming round with microphones uh, to those who I indicate. So if you could raise your hands and please wait until somebody comes and holds <coughs> a microphone in front of you before you ask your question so that everyone in the audience can hear you clearly. And I know this can cause a short delay, but please be patient. And also when you ask your question, could I please ask you to state your name and your organizational affiliation or institutional affiliation? And can I request that we don't have long political speeches? 
my rule of thumb usually is that the length of your question should be much, much shorter than the length of the response that you're expecting. What, what he means is that right was only given to me. Yes. <laughs> okay, so um, who would like to go first? Oh, my goodness. Okay, person at the end. Thank you for your talk. My name is Tanvee Mehta, and I'm from the University of Oxford. Um, so in your speech, you talked a lot about the issues that we face, and you've highlighted that the judicial system and this lack of a strong civil society are particular problems. What would you suggest as a plan of action for strengthening these institutions to safeguard human rights? Okay, and the person next, next to you, I think, had a question as well. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Federico Burlon. I'm a former student of the Human Rights Masters here at the LSE, and I currently work for Tesco as a sustainability manager. Um, what do you see the role of private companies uh, that either have direct operations on India, in India or that source products from India in, in helping with uh, human rights? Okay, thank you very much. And can we have a um, question just in the middle, just there? Thanks. Um, I'm Emily Morrison from Gender in the City. Um, so you mentioned, obviously, a bit about some of the awful crimes about women against women and girls that have taken place. Um, honestly, I know very little about India. So when I saw these crimes, I kind of interpreted it that there was more sensitivity and awareness about these crimes. But from what you've said, it maybe seems like actually they're getting worse or more prevalent. I was wondering if that was a correct interpretation. Okay, that's good. That's a good three sets of questions about uh, what can be done around judicial... Uh, the judiciary and uh, the judicial system, what can be done around civil society, private companies, and around violence against women, and whether that's increasing? <clears throat> well, let me say one thing that I think India is facing one of the most difficult challenges of its times. And I am a very keen observer of what is happening in the society and uh, uh, the functioning of the institutions. I am part of the institutions, as you know. I have been a lawyer for 37 years. And I don't think, honestly, India has any answers either to improve the judicial system or you know, to you know, strengthen the civil society really to stand up. Because for two reasons. One, that the executive doesn't want a powerful judiciary. Our judge's strength per capita ratio is one of the lowest in the world. And unless and until we are able to increase the strength of the judges, the infrastructure for the judges, it is really difficult. If you were to come to the Supreme Court today on Mondays and Fridays, you will be shocked that it is impossible to walk in the corridors, it is impossible to enter the courtrooms, and it is well nigh impossible to address the judges. And I have been fighting as president of the bar for, uh, since I've been the president for one year. Uh, trying uh, to persuade the government to, you know, uh, do something about it, trying to tell my judges. And I can tell you one thing, that there is resistance at every stage. Nobody is interested in future. Nobody has a vision. Nobody wants to do anything. So I really don't think, and judiciary, unfortunately, is not sensitized to these issues. Unless and until we are able to sensitize judiciary on a large-scale basis, See, first and foremost, nobody in our country wants to acknowledge what has happened, whether in 1984 or 2002, or large number of such massacres which take place. 
We all read newspapers or we say oh, how bad it is that young child of two years has been raped and next day we forget about it. So unless and until we can sensitize the judges, unless we can strengthen the judiciary, it is very difficult. And so far as the civil society is concerned, I think, I don't know, I, India has suddenly, uh, suddenly lost the vigor of, uh, you know, uh, of becoming a strong civil society. Everybody wants to mind his own business. Everybody is afraid of the consequences. And I mean, I don't blame them. Take, for example, the business community. Most of these politicians are highly vindictive. And it is therefore very difficult for civil society to really stand up against these people. Now, when it comes to the second question about the corporate responsibility, I can only quote what Amartya Sen <clears throat> once said, and this is the answer to what you say. There is emerging consensus within international and academic communities that development means much more than just the growth of gross national product. He calls it a process of expanding the real freedoms that people enjoy, in which the substantive freedoms like food, life and health, and instrumental freedoms like speech, transparency, and protective security are equally important. Corporate social responsibility is virtually absent in India. Mark my words. Virtually absent. And unfortunately, <clears throat> we do not believe in India that right-based ap approach to the development. It's a big challenge. Mining, it is happening in large scale. For example, in tribal areas, you must have seen POSCO and other projects, uh, Vedanta, uh, based uh, corporation based out of United Kingdom in Odisha. Very serious challenges. So it's a tough call. Now, when it comes to rights of women, yes, the attacks against women are increasing, undoubtedly. And, and it is really difficult to do anything about it because the mindset of Indian men is something which is very difficult to change. We are feudal in more than one way, more than one way. And therefore, unless and until the respect for women is you know, restored into the society, it would be very difficult to stop crimes against women, particularly you know, the rapes and other. It's very common, I don't know whether you know about it, India or not, but it's very common today that honor killings take place, where if the girls marry somebody outside their caste, the parents agree for their killings. These are private killings. Dowry deaths, for example, in every marriage in India, in society, it's very common to ask for some money from you know, the girl's side, the boy's side would ask. And if the girl's parents are unable to give, the killings of these daughters goes on absolutely unabashedly, routinely. Thousands of girls are being killed every year for you know, this dowry. It's a social you know, evil, and we are unable to do anything about it. So it's a big challenge. Okay, and I think the gentleman at the very back uh, had his hand up first. Thank you very much, Ajay Bhardwaj. I'm just a tourist to India over the last 40 years. One thing I have noticed, uh, the number of Supreme Court judges in India, about 32 in a billion-odd uh, population. 30. 30, sorry. How justifiable is it for them to do their job properly? and to look after the human rights. Okay, thank you. And if you could pass your microphone just along a bit to the young lady. Thank you. 
Uh, I'm Saher, uh, an international relations student in LSE. My question is more catered for the youth of India. Um, just before I go on with my question, a short instance from last year. I was at a mall in uh, Delhi at Select City Walk, and we were organizing an e exhibition for the upliftment of women. So we had exhibits of acid attack survivors and other women. And a man comes up to me, probably a 40 or 50 years of age, and he says, what is your problem? Why are you getting involved? Isn't the police and government here to do this? In a situation like that, where people are saying that where our governments, as you've mentioned, have been involved in genocide, then our other government, which is probably, like, which is up, has twice failed its role. Where does that leave the youth of India going forward? What can we really do to bring about a change when we're not even welcome in, the, in that sphere? Okay, and uh, lady just, you, yes. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Subha Chopra. I'm doing master's here in public policy and administration at LSE. Um, I have two very short questions, otherwise I will not get a chance to say them again. Um, you mentioned about the caste-based problems, and uh, you indicated that uh, the political parties, who uh, they're kind of uh, making them an even larger issue than it actually is. But in my opinion, uh, political parties come and go, but the caste problems always, they're always there. So what, how, what, what is a way to get out of that? I mean, you mentioned a few instances and cases where, uh, you know, because a person or a child or a girl or a boy was from a different, from a lower schedule caste, so they were killed or burned. So how can we change that mindset? And second question was, um, he spoke about the manufactured revolts, um, as the current government is saying, that they all are manufactured and everything. But um, because in India there's, there's this trend that the, the party who is not in power will not let the party in power even function. And, uh, you know, so they'll, they'll do these manufactured revolts. Do you think that's one of the reasons why human rights violations are increasing in India? Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's a... Uh, four questions uh, about the effectiveness of 30 judges, Supreme Court judges, about the youth of India and uh, prospects for them in terms of political participation, caste violence, and about the opposition parties and manufactured revolts. Let me begin by telling you, confessing rather very frankly, and this is perhaps, I mean, I don't know whether I'm right or wrong, but this is what I actually believe. I'm a pessimist. I'm a permanent pessimist, and I'm a proud permanent pessimist. <laughs> I don't think India's problems can be resolved by anybody. It is impossible, virtually impossible. And nobody is making any effort. We don't have anybody on horizon who can really lead the country out of the mess that we are. And it's like a quagmire. Every day we are getting deeper and deeper into it. Mr. Modi promised, I mean, despite my opposition to Mr. Modi for the last 12 years, I had hoped that Mr. Modi would be able to do something good for the country. But far from attempting to do that, Mr. Modi is doing everything, everything to really take us backward. Now, answering to the gentleman there, you know, 75,000 cases a year in the Supreme Court of India. Every Monday and Friday, the benches of two or three are looking into 75 cases per bench. So you can imagine 
that it is virtually impossible for them to do real justice. And these matters, unfortunately, the Supreme Court has become a court of appeal rather than a constitutional court that it was envisaged to be. Far from you know, taking up cases of substantial questions of law, which it is supposed to do, it is taking up every nonsensical case that comes across its way. The reason is not because judges want to do it. The reason is that litigants are so dissatisfied with the legal system below in the high courts and subordinate courts because of inefficiency, corruption, that everybody virtually wants to come to Supreme Court. If there was a court above Supreme Court, I have no doubt everybody will go there. <laughs> so uh, now the, uh, the question that the young lady is asking, the youth really need to understand uh, what, because they are really the power. We, you know, we pride ourselves by saying that we have the youngest generation of people in the world, in the age group of 25 to 40, who, who can really carry the country forward. But the youth also needs uh, you know, proper guidance. You don't have role models today in society. You don't have good political leaders. You don't have good you know, uh, religious leaders. Half of them are in, many of them, half a dozen of them are in jail because of charges of rape, etc. These are religious leaders. And you don't have good teachers. The parents have lost the value system. We have become singularly materialistic society. And once materialism takes over, you are willing to compromise on every value system. It's not that I don't love money. I am a hardcore capitalist. But, but... I, I respect you know, people's uh, you know, rights. I respect my duties towards society. I, 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 I help large number of people, large number of charities, because that, I believe, is my obligation to the society which is giving me so much. So the youth really, I don't know where they will find the, uh, uh, the real guide or real path to uh, take them. So it's, I mean, I'm not surprised at your encounter. I mean, I'm surprised you got away with it. They could have abused you in much... Now, the, coming to the question that you have posed, as I answered, you know, it's, it's really difficult uh, to find any solution to these problems. And uh, I don't know what will really happen because the caste system is there to stay. You know, the Vedic period didn't have the caste system, as you know. It really started with the Puranic period, uh, which produced some of the greatest, uh, you know, mythological texts like Ramayana, Marahabharata which are now, of course, BJP is trying to say that they are historical texts. So, but that's a different issue. But uh, the caste system is extremely well entrenched. And, uh, in, you know, India, as Gandhiji said, lives in villages. And the villages, the caste system is so bad, so prevalent, that it is really difficult to, uh, you know, uh, do anything. Far from removing it, it's getting worse day by day. And... Uh, even our policy of reservation has not uh, really been successful. And I don't think any government, uh, this is vote bank politics. Okay, we've got time for maybe a couple of questions. And my colleague, Awolalo, in the, in the middle, uh, had his hand up and indicated to me. My friend there has a question. Uh, thanks very much. Um, my name is Awolalo. I am LC Fellow at the Center for Study of Human Rights. Um, I don't know much about India's social structure, but if someone like yourself who has worked in the legal system for such a long time, also someone who seems to believe in the ability of law to change and transform society, uh, feels that there is basically no hope for victims to secure justice, I wanted to ask you if there are 
um, grassroots initiatives uh, by indigenous initiatives by victims themselves that use not necessarily the legal system but other alternative uh, ways of bringing pressure to bear on the government. Are there any grassroots indigenous um, struggles? Well, there is, a, there is a very disturbing answer to that, let me tell you. And this is where the uh, anarchy is setting in. There is, you know, as I spoke about the left-wing Maoist organizations who control about 120 districts today where the writ of the state doesn't run, they have people's court and they are dispensing justice there. And I have met many judges uh, in those areas, uh, regular judges, who say that people don't come to our courts at all, but they go to these people's court. It is not a very happy situation because, uh, you know, these are... But uh, uh, in the... In the judicial system, there is really no grassroots movement to uh, tackle with the injustices in the society or law and order situation. No, there is none. Okay, and we have time for two very quick questions. So if you'd like to go first, yeah. Shireen Arani from iProBono. Uh, iProBono India has been taking forward some cases um, in the High Court for free speech uh, uh, over the last year. Uh, last week, we had a case for a Muslim journalist called Shima Femi, Shiba Femi, and uh, it was very heartening to hear the Delhi High Court judge completely on our side and told the uh, counsel for the state to seriously reconsider bringing these charges against our client. Now, we've had a few cases like that. We've also had some cases where the judge has been uh, thoroughly disappointing, but there are as a story of hope, there are still some judges and some great lawyers like yourself who are leading the way. Do you see a time in the near future where voices like that of these judges, progressive judges, yourself, other advocates, um, so small civil society organizations like I Pro Bono India, um, and the media, where those voices are, um, are shut down? Do you see that happening in the near future? Because in, from, from our perspective, it is really the liberal media and these few members of the judiciary and of the bar that uh, continue to have these causes heard. Okay. And just the last question from the gentleman there. Uh, thank you, uh, sir. Uh, my name is Yash, and I'm uh, a master's student at the Human Rights Center. Um, <laughs> just an incident uh, when this uh, Shiv Sena Inc. incident happened, uh, LK Advani criticized, and somebody said that um, uh, what kind of society we have reached that people like LK Advani looks liberal. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, uh, <laughs> my, my my question is uh, related to the support, strong support of Modi, and you're talking about right wing rise. Uh, uh, I, I believe that there was always right wing domination uh, over the Indian society, right even like, since ages. But what is scary is that he has managed to uh, gather a strong support from uh, an educated class, so living in cities, people like engineers, doctors, uh, quite intelligent class, and uh, giving rise to nationalist jingoism. And you know, you, you criticize Modi, you become anti-national, you 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 anti-national, um, you know, uh, pseudo secular, <laughs> extreme leftist. So, uh, how do you justify this? This strong support coming out from you know an educated class, and uh, believe me, educated. I mean, this educated class may not be communal, may not be uh, right wing, but very strong support in favor of Modi, looking upon him as a masiya and who would bring change and development. Okay, and I think the term they most commonly use is um, uh, secular libtard prostitute. Uh, 
<laughs> and by the way, I'm quite scared about your, you know, your, your journey way back home. I'm not sure <laughs> immigration guys are going to leave you so, so easily. Thank you for your question. That's unfortunately, I have to be the last two. Let me, let me respond to uh, Shirin here first. There are uh, in judicial system outstanding judges, but they are far and few. And uh, I must say Delhi High Court today is perhaps India's best high court. We have about 20 plus high courts. And most high, because I travel to most high courts quite often, at least once or twice a month, I'm in one high court or the other, arguing some case or the other. But uh, these judges are really far and few. And, uh, uh, and it's really difficult. I would number broadly, I mean, I, I don't know, but I would broadly say that just about 20% of the judges are really liberal you know, in their thoughts, along with courage to really strike at this kind of attacks on human rights. So that's, that's really broadly my analysis of the courts, including the Supreme Court. Now, coming to your question, the answer really was given beautifully <laughs> by Ambedkar again, way back in 1948, during the Constituent Assembly debate, he quoted Edmund Burke to say that however you know, great a man may have been, however great a service he may have done for his nation, nobody should forget that no man can uh, do it at the cost of his honor. No, man can, no woman can respect him at the cost of her chastity. And no nation can respect him at the cost of its liberty. Ambedkar warned, and this is very important, that hero worshipping is really a sure way of degradation of democracy and a path towards dictatorship. And he doesn't end here. He says in 1948, India, unlike any other country in the world, he says, is more prone to hero worshipping. And he says hero worshipping is good for the salvation of the soul, but it is not good for democracy. Now, this is what is really happening today. Mr. Modi has been actually elevated to the status of being a demigod. Because he, you know, India, he, he really gave this beautiful dream to people where everybody thought that, yes, he will take this country, perhaps he's straight into the 25th century. So, uh, uh, but, but it has not happened. And uh, it's really... Uh, really difficult to understand whether, uh, and he's realizing that uh, these promises, what he really was successful at, and uh, this is where people shut their eyes, or it's very easy to shut your eyes, is the, you know, is, is a powerful, you know, media campaign which was launched. They spent uh, almost, uh, by, by conservative estimates, almost $5 billion in the campaign. So, you know, it's, it's very difficult for people, ordinary men to see through that kind of light coming. It's such a powerful light through media campaign which comes onto you. You are completely, you know, blinded by it. So that's really what happened. Now, so far as uh, Advani is concerned, he said so because Sudendu Kulkarni used to be his personal secretary for a number of years. So he spoke because of that. But Advani is certainly not a liberal. He was responsible for the uh, falling of the Babri Masjid, and no nation can forgive him. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, actually, before uh, everybody uh, before everybody leaves, can I just uh, 
remind you of an important event which is on law, politics and human rights in times of debt and austerity, which is on the 10th of December at 6.30 with Zoe Konstantopoulou, who is the former president of the Greek Parliament and a politician from Syriza, and she'll be coming here. And if you want to keep informed of centre events, please uh, sign up to our newsletter or follow us on LSE Human Rights on Twitter. Can I thank, again, Dushant Deve for an extremely powerful and inspiring I must, I must end with your, uh, you know, uh, with your fears. Uh, I have placed my, you know, fate in the hands of the Almighty. But I am lucky that I have my wife, you know, who has been constantly supporting me. She is the source of my courage and, uh, you know, uh, my, uh, my fight against, uh, and but for the support that your spouse or wife would give, it would be very, very difficult. So perhaps uh, because of her. And may I also thank all of you for coming here, for your helpful contributions, and for an extremely stimulating discussion.